Hello and welcome to Adverse Reactions Season 2. My name is David Faulkner and this is my co-host. And Chappelle. As much fun as the first season of Adverse Reactions was, I think Season 2 is better. Hidden. Secretive. Exactly. The toxicology that happens when you're not looking. Or toxicology that you forgot about. It's still important and we're here to talk about it. Welcome to Season 2 of Adverse Reactions. Hidden toxicology. Biostatistics, the hottest science. What makes statisticians or biostatisticians a little bit different is that we are very much aware of the need to think of uncertainties. When we come up with a risk estimate and we come up with some products, we want to think about what's the uncertainty associated with this risks. Or heat stressed, the real Howard Chang talks biostats and public health. For many of us, extreme heat exposure might not be that of an issue because we have air conditioning, but what's the parts of the city or the population that are more vulnerable to heat exposure? This is Anne Chappelle, and I am really happy to welcome the real Howard Chang, professor at the Rollins School of Public Health at Emory University, with joint appointments in the Department of Biostatistics and Bioinformatics and Environmental Health. He's a very busy man. Howard, what do you do for a living? How would you explain it to my mom? The sexy terms now is that I work in data science for public health. I think that very much encompasses what I do and what I think about every day. Very cool. So data science, isn't science all about data? So what is special about how you do data? There has been this explosion of the data that we're getting from different data streams, from the chemics holes we can measure, from satellite imagery, from all the electronic health records that's being collected. So a lot of the health researchers now are very interested in leveraging all these different data sources and just the volume that they have and to design epidemiologic studies and to think about how do we understand environmental impact. So we think a lot about the challenges with using these data sets, some of the biases that might be in these data and try to do our best to answer timely questions. So when I think of data science, I think of computer science but your undergraduate degree was in statistics. That's right. So do you think of statistics as like an applied computer science? How much of the computer part of it do you think of with biostatistics? That's a great question. What is our contribution? And it is a very broad term. I like to think of me as a statistician. I think about how do we use this data to make inference? So how do we say something about the real world? So I think a lot about how the data are generated and some of the issues. Data science is a huge field and there's a lot of research on, for example, how do we even store the data? How do we process the data? How do we make them accessible? But I think what makes statisticians or biostatisticians a little bit different is that we are very much aware of the need to think of uncertainties. So when we come up with a risk estimate and we come up with some products, you want to think about what's the uncertainty associated with this risks. I think this is a really interesting point. I want to spend some time on this. So you're talking about biases and data, right? Where does the data come from? 
And I think that this is a really important point is that whenever we're talking about research or science or some kind of data collection, we can't extract fully the human element there. What sort of things do you think about when you're trying to say this is good data or a well collected data set? What sort of things do you think about when you're trying to remove that bias? I can just think of two ways we collect data. One is prospectively. So in health studies, we might recruit participants. So that's a usually very well-designed study where we will recruit them, we'll have a protocol or plan of what to be measured. And because we're actually collecting data throughout that process, we can do a lot of QA, QC and, and checking because we're following individuals or actually actively sampling. We can go back and, and make corrections. The other way is if we have a scientific question we want to address, we have to go back and look at how data are collected that are actually not initially planned to be linked to health data, right? So if they go back in time and then link that to other health data, they might not be collected for health studies. Let's say air quality monitor or, or samples uh, bias in some way. So either way, we do have to involve, nowadays, almost everything is a team science. So we way to avoid this bias, even when we are recruiting individuals, you know, what are some of the populations we should target and some of the questions that when we're designing measurements, we should be aware of. So in my world, I deal a lot with a particular chemical. In the 60s, 70s, 80s, there was a lot less control of that chemical. The workplace exposures tended to be very high. Since that time, we've dropped those exposures, but it is so hard to get those old exposures away from consideration for these adverse health effects. Two things I wanted to ask you about was one is how do you say you got to exclude that? And two is we didn't look for the same endpoints maybe five, 10, 15 years ago. Now we do. That doesn't necessarily mean it's a bigger problem now, but can you comment on that? Luckily, of course, many of the toxicants and chemicals have decreased over the past few decades. So, for example, now working in air pollution, and our air quality has improved quite a lot in the last few decades. But there's still a question about even at current outdoor level, do we still see health effects? And like you said, some of the health endpoints, it's also different now that we're often interested in long-term exposure. Even this pretty low level, that if you're exposed to 10, 15 years, Let's say, what's the association with cognitive decline? Something that, that's really relevant now. Once you're at the lower level, it's even more important to leverage as much data as you have. Because you really want to exploit not just the temporal contrast, but potentially the spatial contrast, different regions, or, or even within an urban setting might have differences in exposures. So I think that the way we design our studies to make the part of the dose response curve more relevant has a lot to do with thinking what's the current level that the population is exposed to. And of course, the workplace setting is a little bit different because it's the populations. Many of these chemicals are exposed on a population level. So again, thinking along that line kind of help us the various studies we do. This leads me to wonder, you're doing a lot of public health research, generating these data and analyzing them and trying to make some kind of statement about this. Ideally, someone would take this information that you've generated and use it to craft policy. I'm curious if you could talk a little bit about generally what you think about 
in terms of the role of biostatistics in crafting policy. My experience with policy is that policymakers generally have a very poor grasp of statistics. The American legal system struggles with statistics because we all want certainty. <laughs> Right. In science, can you prove everything right. beyond the realm of a reasonable doubt? I think there's a quote, there's lies, damn lies, and statistics. So yes, of course. Yeah. What do you think about the suggestion that, oh, well, you can use statistics to make any set of data say anything? Yes. No, and that's something I actually say a lot when I teach our students, that one of the reasons why statistics department is often under a science is because there are actually a lot of choices. It's easy, for example, like you say, if, if you're a shady scientist, it's easy to throw some data out and then create more data and then try different ways to analyze the data, you know, slice and cut the data in different ways. That's why we rely on the integrity of the scientific community, that some of the choices you make be transparent about. So we try to justify some of the choices you make, why we think this data might be collected incorrectly, so it's best to not use it. And it's just one data point that will change my story. Right? So I think transparency is very important. There's been a great push for reproducibility. So making sure that when possible, your data is made available and all your analysis code, how you clean the data is also made available. So if anyone, wants to incorporate your data in their own analysis or if they want to kind of reproduce what you have done and double check, you know, they can do that. And I think it's becoming not a requirement, but very much encouraged. Could you talk about biological significance against statistical significance? Because the season of adverse reactions is about hidden toxicology, you know, to hide underneath some of these numbers and say, well, it's not biologically significant. That is something from an essential toxicology standpoint and pharmacology, all these things. What is important and who gets to decide what is biologically significant? So I am actually a very big fan of what's called restrictive epidemiology. So we think about what is the burden of a risk factor on the population. So when we do some of our temperature study or some of our air pollution study, the risk we find are usually very, very tiny in comparison to say smoking. To help communicate the significance that we will try to convert that risk to a burden. And because some of the environmental exposures, the entire population is exposed to it. And often exposed to it unknowingly. So we try to use the best available science and statistics to try to figure out if I say ozone air pollution leads to asthma exacerbation, what's that, that number look like, you know, the state level, country level. So I think that will help in terms of understanding the relative contribution of so many different risk factors. There's the individual risk, there's the community, and, and a lot of the risk that we measure is on the population level. I actually don't have a, like, a good answer for this because it's philosophical. You have your own measure of looking at all the scientific data and recommendations we have and think about your own world, who you interact with, and how do you minimize risk and what's important to you. So I think it's a very, in the end, it's a very individualized choice. You're doing biostatistics and we talk about bias and confounding and relative risk and the burden estimate. So the way that you've approached biostatistics has really been more in the public health area. When we were talking a little earlier, you said that you're not necessarily a toxicologist, 
but could you talk about that intersection between biostatistics and toxicology? Yeah, so statistics are used everywhere. So for example, there are many different types of air pollution, different sources of air pollution. You mentioned traffic, electricity generation, you know, power plant is one, and of course, uh, wildfires. It's another major source in many regions of the country. Knowing that air pollution is bad for human health is, is well established. Something that we're very interested in is what's the most vulnerable population. So let's say air pollution and asthma, right? Is it because these are mostly individuals who have uncontrolled asthma such that they're more vulnerable to you know, the asthma will ex exacerbate, right? So really understanding what are the subpopulations that are more at risk of the air pollution effect. I think that's one way we can do a lot more. And so better communications or potential things to reduce exposure. Similar things to like some of the heat waste work we do, that for many of us, extreme heat exposure might not be that big of an issue because we have air conditioning, but what's the parts of the city or the population that are more vulnerable to heat exposure? And think about what the city can do when there's a heat wave warning, what can we do to target specific populations? So I think there's a lot of work in my field. It's challenging because let's say for heat exposure, we can get everyone air conditioning, but they can like drive off the electricity use. There's lots of considerations when you think about how do we reduce risk. You've done so much work on so many different topics, and I think that's really cool. You're in biostatistics, you're a professor biostatistics at Emory, which is extremely impressive. So how does one get to your position? My undergraduate degree in the beginning was actually in microbiology and immunology. So I've always been interested in health sciences. In the early 20s, it was the biotechnology what was a big thing. So I've always been interested in human health. But later on, I found out that I'm just not a very good bench scientist. <laughs> <laughs> That's me. That's okay. me too. And I've always enjoyed analyzing data, collecting data. So I ended up with a statistics major. And biostatistics is challenging because there actually aren't that many undergraduate programs in biostat. So I would say many of us are math majors, stat major, computer science or engineering majors who are interested in health application that got us into it. And of course, there are many fields of biostatistics. I mostly work on environmental health, population health. There's a lot of genomics, for example, that, that's also very important. So really all biomedical public disciplines would need quantitative thinking. I think one great thing about being a data person is that we get to play in everyone's backyard. Different exposure, different health outcomes will be called upon to, to help think through some of the issues. I've been lucky in the sense that my collaborators are always excited to, to try out new methods and, and when there are new emerging data, they're always excited about thinking what's the best way to analyze it. So I would say I'm lucky in the sense that I'm excited with them. So you have graduate students, right? Postdocs. Mm -hmm. Where do they come from and where do they go? Our biostat MPH or MSPH students, they really can go into many different fields. So some do go into PhD degree, but not restricted to biostat. There's actually quite a few that goes into epidemiology, environmental health sciences, based on their interests. The master's degrees will teach them the quantitative skill sets that really can be applied to different areas of biomedical sciences. 
definitely a large proportion of the students were going to pharmaceutical companies because, of course, being able to run trials and analyze those data are very important. But then also a big proportion will go into government or state health departments. And of course, we're next door to the CDC. So many of our students have summer internships there and a good team. So how often do you get into a situation where your research colleagues like, oh, look at this data. And you go through and you're like, nope. (laughs) (laughs) You are, your field is so critical Mm -hmm. to correct interpretation of the data. But I would say it tends to be this hidden field, but it really is the crux of everything. (laughs) Of everything, because you don't, you know, do your tests right. You make these associations. There's all kinds of classic graphs you can see that the increase in avocado use is associated with the opening of whole food stores or something in the area. So this is a really critical, and I think as a scientist, we all know how important biostatistics is, but how do you get that message across to, or to get them to pay for you? Because you're not free you're not right. free either. So how no, I'm you... the neighborhood free statistician. <laughs> exactly. No, Five cents for a p-value, you know. Right, right. I'm always having to have coffee and talk to people about the problem. And I think there are situations where your data just don't support your hypothesis or there's something wrong with data collection. And I think we just have to move on. <laughs> but it's a learning experience. You can think something from everything. But often if a statistician is involved early on, a lot of the time we can help. I mean, you know, there's the dreaded power calculations for all for, yes. for every study. It might seem kind of trivial when it's just part of your exam question or homework question that everyone in the first statistics class have to do. But it does have a lot of implications. Really think through, what do, you, do you have enough data? Because some of these experiments are very expensive. Right. So being able to have a good grasp of potential success is it's extremely important. I've definitely read a few articles by statisticians saying that they don't like the way the p-values are used and that's not how they're supposed to be used. Could you, for the benefit of some of our more research-inclined listeners, tell us a little bit about the humble p-value? The humble p-value. My personal view on the p-value. What do you think it's actually good for? Personal opinion. (laughs) Okay, right, right. I think when we think about statistical inference and saying something about the work from our data, I think there are two goals, right? One is providing an estimate, a quantitative estimate, maybe with some uncertainty. The other goal is to say something with a binary decision, yes or no. And whenever we use a p-value, I think we're in that second paradigm that my goal is to declare something yes or no making a hypothesis test. And the p-value, in my view, is a way for the readers and consumers to decide your own error or risk tolerance on making that decision. The the infamous p-value, which is 0.05, for example, explicitly is saying that my tolerate for risk is 5%. That if I do this experiment many, many times, I will make the wrong decision 5% of the time. And sometimes in some settings that might be too liberal, I might want to be only tolerate 0.1%, right? So then I will look at the p-value differently. I think p-value is a tool for those of who write papers, do experience to present, but the 
onus is on the readers and those who are reading the study to understand whether or not based on my results and the p-value I provided, it's enough for me to make that decision. Of course, also taking into account the uh, biological significance of whether or not estimated is relevant. So what do you wish that people knew about biostatistics? So in terms of when I collaborate people, I wish that they have a precise hypothesis of what they want to get. Very clearly, what is the risk factors? What is the outcome? And the specific question they want to answer. Instead of saying, I have this outcome, I have this exposure, I want some health effects, help me. So I think the more precise and more tailored question helps science and helps study design, helps data analysis. And there are always more questions to ask. Oh yeah. oh, yeah. But to start somewhere, I think it would be most helpful. It is really hard to do that. But that is the first part of being a scientist is writing the null hypothesis. Even before you collect data. You've got to boil it down into something really specific. Yeah, and then translate to what they have to collect, how many participants, and what the model might look like. So it kind of drives everything. So without a scientific question. Data is so expensive to generate. You mm -hmm. want to collect a lot of endpoints sometimes because I only get one mouse and I only got one shot at this, but I can see how that drive you crazy. What about for people maybe outside of the realm of research? Because statistics are everywhere. When you see a statistic, what should your reaction be? How should people think about it? You definitely want to see where the data come from? Is it from a large survey, a nationally or a representative survey, or is it from a very special subpopulation? We see that a lot during election years, yes. but the good thing is that many of the media, you can actually click on it and it takes you to the original paper, the preprint. So if you're interested, you can dive into it a little bit more, but definitely representative of the data and of course the sample size. Like you say, statistics can lie. So think about how that applies to yourself and whether or not you can really trust that number. Yeah, it's like, who's generating this data? And why would they want me to know this number? What are they trying to get me to do? Right. And scientists are usually very open about all the limitations in the study and what are the next steps. What are some things, some hidden things you'd like to see toxicologists tackle? So first of all, you know, even though I mostly work in population health and epidemiology, of course, we go hand in hand with toxicology. Our research I've been really interested in is heat exposure. So how, how extreme heat impact mortality or morbidity. But what's particularly interesting is what makes a person vulnerable? Is that the medication they're taking? Uh, just on pre-existing conditions that make them more vulnerable to dehydration, thermal regulation. So I think there are a lot of these mechanistic things that we're starting to try to decipher using population data that will be very interesting to know what the toxicology is filling the gaps. Yeah, I think there's increased focus that a child is not a little adult and a grandparent is not an adult either. And the toxicology and the metabolic changes of aging and of the young. And so I think that looking at slices of these populations will become more important as these issues become highlighted. Like, hey, wait a minute, why is this okay for this population? That's fantastic. I'm really glad that I got to talk to the real Howard Chang. The real Howard Chang. And a statistician.
Thank you, Anne and David. It's been a wonderful experience. This is probably the best part of our job. Talk about research. Yeah, yeah. You statisticians are the avenue through which all of the tox data actually becomes meaningful. That's so fascinating to me. And then you have so many cool things you're working on. I regret that we only have this short period of time. But thank you so much for joining us. And now it's time for the teaser. Next week on Adverse Reactions. The delicious world of Alex Lau. Or talks and treats, unconventional careers in food safety. If you want to isolate that flavor and put it into like a pudding cup, it's not just banana puree added to pudding. They have to chemically isolate those compounds and then add it back. So now you're eating banana compounds in a place that you don't typically find it naturally. And so as a toxicologist, you have to look at whether or not those additional uses of that flavor or component or whatever ingredient they're adding is going to be safe over a person life. Thank you all for joining us for this episode of Adverse Reactions presented by the Society of Toxicology. And thank you to Dave Levy at Maestro Studios. That's Maestro with a three, not an E. Who created and produced all the music for Adverse Reactions, including the theme song Decompose. The viewpoints and information presented in Adverse Reactions represent those of the participating individuals. Although the Society of Toxicology holds the copyright to this production, it has definitely not vetted or reviewed the information presented herein. Nor does presenting and distributing this podcast represent any proposal or endorsement of any position by the Society. You can find out more information about the show at Adverse Reactions Podcast. And more information about the Society of Toxicology on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, and Twitter. I'm Anne Chappelle. And I'm David Faulkner. This podcast was approved by Anne's mom. Mm -hmm.